But I want to take a moment to pray before we go into God's word, and we'll go from there. And so, Lord, thank you for the power of your word, this convicting power of your word, the saving power of your word. Thank you that you've seen fit for us to be here today. And so, Lord, in the midst of this congregation of those who are truly saved, I pray that you will edify and build up and encourage. And, Lord, for those who are here who are standing outside of the grace of God and looking, may you bring them to the end of themselves and to repentance. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is a great chapter. It is used a lot of times. If you have been to anybody's ordination service or anybody's, uh, if you've ever been to a missionary commissioning service, Isaiah 6 contains a verse that is used extremely often with this. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8, here is the verse. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Now, this is familiar to some of you. Is that correct? Is that an accurate thing? You've heard this verse before? We're going to back up a little bit and drop down into text. I think you look at this verse differently from this time onward because there's more to it than this. And so let's back up to the beginning part of chapter 6. We'll work our way through and then work our way over to the New Testament. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In fact, why don't we just read through the whole chapter, and then we'll come back. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, and this would be 740 B.C., in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, some kind of order of angels. This is the only time in Scripture they're mentioned. It means burning ones. We don't know exactly what or who they are. Are they burning with holiness, burning with love for God, burning with desire? We don't know. In a good sense, they are the burning ones, the seraphim. The other chapter or coordinates of angels would be the cherubim, which are never presented as babies on clouds. That was something out of Europe, and they got that one wrong as well. So seraphim and cherubim are the only types of angels who are described. And so with these angelic beings, look at what it says in verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out one another to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, actually, the whole earth is full of his glory, but especially as it relates to the second coming. Because actually, when you go to 1 John, you'll find the whole earth lies in the power of the evil one. One day, that will not be true. The whole earth lies in the power of the evil one. is a temporary status. This one is a concealed glory to be revealed a little bit later. And here's what happens, verse 4 and following. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then Isaiah said, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is in the holiness of God in this vision. And he understands right away that he is unholy in the midst of somebody holy. 
And he understands, woe, destruction, woe is me. I am undone. He understands that he ought to be consumed on the spot. Now, this is somebody who was walking with God. This is somebody obedient to God. The seraphim were sinless. He was a sinner. And he understands that there's a sense that he should not be in the presence of God. And then he is even more concerned because he says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm not dropping a plug for this, but the fourth glory book that's finished, that, and I keep studying the glory of God, and I don't run out of, out of things. You know what is a problem with this chapter? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. You know what the problem with that is? You've got multiple verses in Scripture saying nobody can see God at any time. So how can you reconcile this, that I saw the Lord, with Scripture references that says no one can see God at any time? Paul says he is in, in, invisible, and uh, no one has seen him, no man has seen him. John says the same thing in John chapter 1. And so we're going to see an aspect of the answer as we get later on in our time here this morning. And so then in verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand he had taken from the altar. And notice that this occurs before verse 8. Before he is sent out, he is sanctified. Because any true Christian ministry, and this is not so much Christian, there weren't Christians then, but any much ministry of the Lord is an outflow of your walk with him. God did not teach Isaiah a system or a technique. He taught him, brought him into a relationship with him, and then commissioned him. He touched, verse 7, he touched my mouth with it and says, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven. Then verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Most of the times I've ever heard this, in fact, every other time I've ever heard this, this is where it stops. People may do Isaiah chapter 6, starting verse 1, or go to verse 8, and then that's it. Now, for any of you who do any kind of ministry, whether that is, quote, full-time ministry or just things you do within the church, how would you like to have God's pronouncement of what he's getting ready to say to Isaiah? He says in verse 9 and 10, he says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. Now look what Isaiah says in verse 11, Lord, how long? How long am I going to do this? And here's the answer. God does not say until multitudes are converted. He doesn't say that you will have a fruitful ministry. In fact, just the opposite. He says, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Look at verse 13, good news and bad news. 
Yeah, there will be a tenth portion in it. And the good news is God is going to maintain a remnant. The bad news is 90% is going to be slaughtered. And it will be, again, subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I teach, among other things, at the Master's Seminary, I teach a book on Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So it begins, obviously, with the life of Samuel early in the first part of 1 Samuel. And then it ends with the nation of Israel going, the ten northern tribes going into exile in 722 B.C. And then it ends with the final part, the deportation to Babylon in 586 B.C. And what I tell the guys in class is that if you start with the destruction of Jerusalem, the murders that would take place, the rapes that would take place, the gouging out of the eyes sometimes, depending on whatever they wanted to do, depending on whatever they were in the mood for. That's what they did when they came in. The book of Lamentations laments all the calamity that has come on the nation of Israel and the temple being destroyed. If you start with this, how in the world could God possibly allow this? And yet, if you start in 1 Samuel and you work your way through Kings, the people rebel against God, reject God. They are a wicked people. Sometime on your own, if you want to, go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, God is pretty much the prosecuting attorney because he tells the nation of Israel, Judah especially, you have turned from me, you have followed foreign gods, you are going after idols. The head is sick, the whole body is sick, there is nothing that they do. I hate your feasts, I hate your sacrifices. Because when you go through here, you'll find out that the people not only abandoned God, they picked up wicked behavior which would include even slaughtering their infants. In God's sight, whether he was there or not, even in Jerusalem around there, they slaughter infants to false gods. And then we go to the temple, and God says, I hate this. It is a wicked people that Isaiah is sent to. And so with this, there's a line in there, you can read this, but it says in Isaiah chapter 1 that unless God had preserved a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Now that's pretty sinful, right? When you get compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, there is a standard that is pretty low for you to jump over. And there's not a whole lot of difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and the people that Isaiah ministered to. And so he is sent to this people. And again, how would you like to go into the ministry? And God says, keep on speaking, but they're not going to listen to you. They're not, they don't have eyes to see, spiritual eyes. They don't have spiritual ears to hear. It's a condition of the heart. All right, so why would God send Isaiah to a people if the people are not going to respond to him? And the answer comes in with this. The people have rejected God and his word. They are living in rebellion against God. God sends Isaiah to give them additional information which they will not receive. And God holds them accountable for their rejection of God's word. It is a dangerous thing whether you are an individual 
whether you are a family, whether you are a nation, whether you are a church, whether you are a denomination, it is a dangerous thing to reject the word of God. And when Isaiah says, I live in the midst of a people with unclean lips, if it was a prophet to America, what do you think he would say? By the way, Europe's even worse, but we're only half a step behind. And so Isaiah goes to a rebellious people. There are no reports of a massive evangelistic movement. When you go to the book of Hebrews, it says that there were some in the book, in chapter 11, it says that some were used of God to fight mighty battles, and God brought them through the fire. It says others were despised, rejected, lived in caves, sawn in two. As far as we know with Isaiah, that's how his life ended. That somebody took a saw, cut him in half, died a martyr's death. All right, now we'd ask this in class from time to time. Would you consider the ministry of Isaiah a success or a failure? And would you apply the same standard to your own life? We are not responsible for the results. We're responsible for the faithfulness. Whether that is witnessing to someone, whether that is discipling somebody, whether it's doing women's ministry, whatever that it is. We're not responsible for the results. We're responsible for the faithfulness. And Isaiah was faithful. And so he preaches the word, and very few, if any, follow him. He preaches the word for decades. He preaches the word, he goes to the grave, in all likelihood he would consider his ministry a failure. I don't think God did. Jesus quotes Isaiah over and over and over again. Paul quotes Isaiah more than he does any other prophet. These wonderful visions, these wonderful vistas of the Messiah. And so for this, fast forward, if you will, about eight centuries, roughly speaking. I have mentioned this past week I was an English literature major. And so being anything to do with numbers is just kind of beyond my scope. So I can say approximately eight centuries. If you have your Bibles, over to Matthew chapter 13 is where we will be. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, roughly speaking, 800 years, give or take, after the events of Isaiah chapter 6. And so now Jesus has ministered. And we saw this in one of our previous sessions. He came and presented himself as the promised Messiah. He came to present himself to the nation of Israel as the one whom, of whom the prophets spoke. He presented himself as the promised king. You can, I guess they're recording this, Mike, is that right? So you can go back and listen to this if you want to. We won't go through all of this. But all of Matthew presents Jesus as the promised Messiah. Sometime on your own, if you want to, go back to Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. That is out of order time-wise. It should be, chronologically speaking, son of Abraham, because that covenant came first, then son of David. When Matthew takes it and goes, whoop, son of David, 
son of Abraham, he is emphasizing the Davidic covenant. He is emphasizing Jesus' right to reign. He is presenting to the Jewish nation that Jesus qualifies to be the Messiah. And not to put down a plug for this. You know the two Psalms that are quoted more in Scripture than any of the others? Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 contains the, the verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But the other Psalm that's used more than any of the others, and there's a debate among scholars whether it's Psalm 110 or 118. In Psalm 118, it says, The stone that the builders has rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. This is marvelous in our sight. Whoever the Messiah is, Scripture requires him to be rejected by the Jewish people before he is accepted by the Jewish people. And Jesus himself quotes this when he is about to go be crucified and so with this early in the gospel of Matthew he presents himself as king he's got the lineage of the king in chapter 1 he can trace his identity his lineage back to David he has the forerunner in chapter 3 of John the Baptist repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Jesus takes the baton in Matthew 4 17 with the same message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he spoke the Sermon on the Mount as a king. He opens his mouth. He doesn't open scripture. He opens his mouth. He does miracle upon miracle upon miracle. He shows his authority over every realm, over the physical realm, over the demonic realm. He shows himself powerful over death. And so when you come to chapter 12, when he heals somebody, the religious leaders cannot deny the miracle, so they deny the source of the miracle. And the source of the miracle, they say, you are not of God, you are of Satan. And what people call the unpardonable sin, where the nation of Israel temporarily rejects her Messiah. Now, he is still king, and he is still going to reign. And those who reject him and die outside of the saving grace of him will be judged by him at some appropriate time that he sees fit. But Matthew chapter 13 it says in verse 1, on that day, on that day of the events of chapter 12, and we don't have time to go there. You can go back and read them on your own if you want to. On the day when the religious leaders say, you are not of God, you are of Beelzebub, on the day when there's a changed relationship, who's my father, who's my mother? These should do the will of God. This is my father. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. On that day. Now look at what takes place with this. We're going to read down through verse 9. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and great multitudes gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, and this is important. This is the first time that he teaches in parables. Before he can go to the Sermon on the Mount, just straightforward sentences. Straightforward sentences. This is what to do. This is what you should expect. Pray this way. No kind of stories. Now he starts telling stories. And he says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Then verse 4, And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, 
And the birds came and devoured them, and others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. Verse 6, when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Verse 8, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. All right, look at the question the disciples have in verse 10. And the disciples came up to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? We have been with you about three years, and you have never done this before. He did not announce, obviously, ahead of time to the disciples what he was doing, or they would have understood. And so they've heard him speak many, many times, heard him say countless things. And now he gets up in the multitudes, or when the multitudes are with him, now he starts speaking stories. A farmer sows seed. Seed goes in different places. There's different types for the response with this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So they gather with him in private. The first part was in public. Now he's talking to his disciples in private. They were at least the 12, possibly only them. Sometimes it's hard with the disciples of Jesus to know whether he's talking about the immediate 12 because he did have other disciples who were around at certain times. But at the very least, he's got the 12 with him. And so they ask him for an explanation, and here's what he says. Verses 11 and following. And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Every one of these parables that he tells in Matthew 13 is a mystery of the kingdom of heaven parable. It does not tell you how to live a happy life. It doesn't tell you how to find a mate in life. It doesn't tell you how to raise your children. The kingdom parables tell what is going to take place from the rejection of the king until his return. And we live in this period from the king being rejected in Matthew 12 before the king returns. And if these are the last of the last days, then his return is very near. And so this explains this. No longer will the disciples be sent out saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is still going to come, but not now. The kingdom of heaven is still going to come, but there are going to be other events that take place first. You're going to have wheat and tares sown together. You're going to have the good and the bad grow up side by side. You'll have in Matthew 13, Jesus saying, the harvest is the end of the age. That's a totally different message than what the disciples were sent out to preach. That was a totally different message. John the Baptist did not say, repent for our, the end of the age is at hand. He talked about the kingdom being here. And so Jesus explains this. And then verses 11 and following, he goes deeper. And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, look at what it says, it has not been granted. Now look at verse 12, if you will. This has nothing to do with money. This is not talking about finances. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from them. This has to do with the reception of God's word as truth. You've got God's promise. If you walk with him and you take his word to heart and you live your life under his authority, he will grant you more 
and more and more understanding of God's word. It is called growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just in knowledge, but in grace. Because if it was just knowledge, it would be about the head. Growing in grace is from the inside out. What a promise of God. None of us are perfect. None of us live perfect Christian lives. But if we live and walk and grow with the Lord, we should see evidence of that in our lives. We've got God's promise. He is going to do this for us. I rejoice in seeing Mike and Brenda after so long a time. When I knew Mike, he had brown hair originally. I think I put a lot of that in his, uh, put a lot of the white hair. Uh, some of the questions that were asked of him. And you know what's neat about this? I can tell in Mike and Brenda a maturity. Not trying to buff their halo, it is just it is just evident. Betsy, can you see the same thing? I hope they see in us a maturity. I hope they see in us. I hope David does. I hope as far as that where we started way, way back when, Paul says, I hadn't arrived in Philippians 3. I press on. We press onward. None of us have got there yet. But what a blessing. What a promise that the good shepherd will actually shepherd us more and more. But in the same way, notice what he says. For the people who have rejected him, and it's the same thing as in Isaiah's case. He has presented the word of God. They have rejected the word of God. In the case of Jesus, it is the spoken word of God that he gives. And it is the written word of God that it is. And it is the incarnate word of God. And they have rejected all in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, the nation, the national leaders reject him. He is not going to reign yet. He will reign, but not now. In the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, he's going to die. He hasn't revealed this yet in scripture, but he's going to die. And later, 1 Peter 1.20, it says that he was chosen, slain before the foundation of the world. And I love this because before there was a first sinner, there's a plan of salvation. Before there was a first sinner already in the mind of God, there was the Savior before the foundation of the world. He's not surprised by this. Grab a concordance sometime. I know they've got electronic concordances now. Grab a concordance and look up God and whoops and see how many hits come up. Or God and uh-oh. Or God and I didn't think about this. Or look up God and what are we going to do now? Now, this is not a surprise to God that the nation of Israel rejected him, and woe be to them. In fact, Jesus says at his last presentation, if you had known what was presented to you, Jerusalem, this day that was made for peace, but as it is, your house is being left to you desolate. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in Matthew chapter 13, to the disciples who have received the word of God, live their life under the word of God, he promises they will have more and more and more as long as they live their life. And in the same way, those who have already rejected him, the little bit that they have will be taken away. And then look what he does. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus quotes, makes a reference to Isaiah chapter 6 where we started way back when. Therefore I speak to them in parables, verse 13, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, 
Now, of course, this has nothing to do with them being deaf physically. This has to do with their spiritual ears to hear the word of God. Do you have perfect audible ears and a dead spiritual ear, a dead heart to hear? And so look what takes place, Jesus says in verse 14. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, and he quotes out of Isaiah chapter 6. You keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again. And I should heal them. It doesn't matter whether it is in Isaiah's time or in the presence of Jesus. It is a dangerous thing to reject the word of God. The people rejected God's word in Isaiah's time. The people rejected God's word in Jesus' time. In fact, in Jesus, they are even more guilty. Because Jesus says, many people desire to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you hear, and it was not granted to them. You talk about sinning against light, the Pharisees did it. Sinning against the revelation of God, the Sadducees did it. All the people who rejected Jesus after all that he had done to show that he is who he is and he has the right to do what he does. This is a turning point. There still will be saved people. But they have rejected the word of God. One more time and we'll start winding down. John chapter 12. Jesus has only hours to live. John chapter 12, as he comes to the end of his life, it would be a year or so, it's kind of hard to tell exactly when, Matthew 13, probably a little over a year since Matthew 13. So in some of his last few hours together, verse 27, he says, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before for this purpose I came to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude therefore who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake but for yours. Verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Verse 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Messiah, the Christ, is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man. Verse 35, Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Last, verse, last part of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. Beloved, sometime on your own when you're going through the Old Testament, 
note the number of times that God hides himself. Whenever God hides himself is generally bad news. And usually when he hides himself, he has offered grace upon grace upon grace and opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity for people to come to him, to walk with him, to live in covenant obedience with him. And so he hides himself. And then look what it says in verse 37 and following. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. Verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I don't know if you mark your Bibles, verse 39 is one you should at least note. Because look at what it says. This is a scary verse in Scripture. For this cause they could not believe. Now look at this. In verse 37, they were not believing. It's an imperfect tense in the Greek. It was repeated action. It was not a one-time not believing. It was over and over and over. They did not believe. They did not believe. They did not believe. They did not believe. And finally it gets to the point they could not believe. Because God has pronounced judgment against them. They have rejected the word of God. Now, beloved, we're not God. I'm not God. If you go into the hospital room of somebody who is getting ready to die and they're in a coma, you, you whisper in their ear or you talk in their ear and you tell them about Jesus and the gospel. I understand from doctors, hearing is the last thing to go with people. They've had people in coma come out and tell what's going on in the room, conversations they've heard. I'm not the one who says that so-and-so is off limits, that there is no chance of salvation for them. There have been people led to the Lord before they were executed. There have been people who led to the Lord in the last few minutes of their lives. And praise God for that. But we think we can glibly walk into the presence of God whenever that we want to. That we're not believing, that we're not believing, that we're not believing, it says they could not believe. If you want a parallel passage, go to Romans chapter 1. They sinned. God gave the revelation. They sinned. God turned them over to more sin. God turned them over to more sin. Three times in Romans 1, in the condemnation, God turned them over. They rejected the things of God. They would not have God to do in anything with their life. And God turned them over. People think they can come to God on their own accord anytime that they want to. Now, grace, it is a grace offer, but it's a limited time offer as well. But with this, look at what it says. Verse 39, for this cause they could not believe. And look what he says. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart. Now look at this. John quotes out of Isaiah chapter 6 just like Matthew did, just like Jesus did. It's the same thing in Isaiah's time, same thing in Matthew 13 with Jesus. Only it's later on as Jesus is getting ready to die. And so with this, look what takes place in verse 41. This explains who Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw Jesus. He saw the pre-incarnate Jesus, high and exalted and lifted up. And as we wind down, verses 42 and 43, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers who believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. 
You see, these last verses that we're going to affect those of us who name the name of Christ. It's easier for us when we're saved to look at somebody who rejects the gospel and rejects God. And we think in terms that we're better. We can think in terms that we're smarter. And we may be wiser in the sense of following God. But there's some people who believed but who would not follow him. Then look at verse 43. I don't know if your Bible has, but they love the approval of men more than the approval of God. You know, it's interesting, the same word doxa that's translated for glory is used in John 12, 43. Some of the translations have for they love the glory of men more than the glory of God. That's a line in the sand, beloved. If you love the glory of God more than the glory of men, then you'll walk with him in humility. You'll walk with him in obedience. If you love the glory of God more than the glory of men, you will evaluate success how God does it. The older I get, the less I envy millionaires, basketball players, rock stars. I'll watch a biography with my wife. And a lot of times it'll be about this, this very rich, famous person for a while. So what does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the entire world and forfeit their soul? What would you give in exchange for that? I pray that your life will be marked by love of the glory of God. I pray that my life will be marked by that. I pray this church will be about the Lord's work and the Lord's business. And so, Lord, I pray that you will use this as you see fit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.